Welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. In this episode, we will be exploring diversity and inclusion and how to rethink it to create a more sustainable change in organizations, but also in society. I am delighted to welcome Swati Jenna, founder of Right4, LinkedIn Top Voice and co-author of the book, Diversity Beyond Tokenism, Why Being Politically Correct Never Helped Anyone. Swati, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susie, and I'm really looking forward to this uh, very interesting conversation. Thank you yeah, for having me. Me too. You're welcome. Swasi, before founding Right4, where you're building a world-class center of excellence to learn, experience, and collaborate for writing, particularly, you've also worked in corporate environments, uh, startups and institutions on the subjects of leadership, learning, and more essentially, creating a culture where people can thrive. This book is not your first, however. Uh, you also wrote The Entrepreneur's Soul Book, uh, which is also about asking the right questions, even if we don't often. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that idea. You co-authored this book with Harry, who unfortunately cannot be with us on this episode, but who is also on a quest for simplifying human problems and creating high performance through inclusion and innovation. He will, however, for me, very much be with us through our discussion as we unwrap and develop some of the themes in your co-authored book and as we speak candidly about diversity inclusion. So wanting to demystify diversity and inclusion and really create an understanding that allows systemic behavioral change as opposed to tokenism is a quest we share. And, you know, I just have to say that I love the title of your book, (laughs) the sincerity and provocative nature of the conversation that we never have, but that is always there. Uh, because it's one of those difficult or spiky conversations. I often work with organizations on how they can deliberately design their processes, systems, and ways of working for inclusion, but also what that means for their DNI strategy if they have one. And I always underline that for me, this is a strategic question and so much more than just a HR tick box exercise yeah. or a dashboard or compliance. And often they are. I think subconsciously shying away from the real, more difficult conversation. And I was, of course, immediately drawn to the title of your book. And when I read it, I clearly wasn't disappointed. Can you tell us more about what inspired you both to write Diversity Beyond Tokenism? Well, I think more than inspiration, it it came from a place of inquiry, uh, Mm. curiosity. I should also say a little bit of skepticism, Um, um, you know, whether we're asking the right questions, whether we are, you know, we are missing out on the conversations we should have. I think that was more uh, the force behind this book. I'd been writing sporadically on on various topics. So, for example, uh, one of the ideas I'd written about was um, if you want gender equality, maternity leave is required, but you probably also need paternity leave. And, you know, that is the only way you're going to uh, get together in inequality in society. Mm-hmm. Out, right? Or whether it is more about getting female demographic or more, a question of getting more feminine mindset because if you look deeply, uh, organizations are increasingly working with a lot of masculine mindset, right? So it's yeah. so not female bodies, maybe we need feminine minds, right? Absolutely. So I've been writing about these topics and then, uh, you know, it, it sort of appeared that uh, this topic deserves a book and I think that was the, the seed of it. 
Yeah, I mean, it clearly does deserve a book. And it reminds me also, you've done a TED talk on asking the right questions. And I think, like you say, you come from a place of inquiry and curiosity. And I think that's a lens that we don't often view this subject through. So I really like the idea of the moving from the question of, am I right? Yeah. To, you know, how do I know I'm right? Or even how could I be wrong? And and I think this constant iteration of learning and relearning on this subject is really important. What was the biggest challenge for you both when you were writing this book? The preface that you've written, that this book has been written, you know, to love age, a creative age, precision and courage. So I think if you say the difficult part of it, um, courage, yes, because a book like this does not exist. These questions have not been asked so openly. It's it's Mm. literally like... Uh, you know, well, the cat kind of a kind of a book, right? Yeah. Um, so it did take courage, professional courage, to to write this. But precision, achieving precision, was the most challenging part, and I'll uh, explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the process by which we wrote the book. So initially, my thought was when I reached out to Hari, and Hari has co-authored my co-author. He has co-authored a lot of book. My first book was a solo book. So co-authoring as a creative process was very new to me. So my initial idea was, uh, you know, we'll discuss around topics and then we'll go go ahead and write the chapters. But how we ended up writing was we wrote our chapters uh, independently. So we sort of had a Chinese wall, as they say in legal terms, right? We didn't, uh, you know, we wouldn't read each other's work till we had completed the, the chapters. And, you know, so diversity in itself has a lot of sub-themes. Each sub-theme has many moving parts. They're they're connected. They're sometimes dichotomous, right? So Mm. the most challenging part was bringing our ideas together in a way that we have addressed all the moving parts. We have brought out the paradoxes without... And found a way to bring it all together, Mm. right? uh, I think from a writing perspective, uh, this was a very complex book and that was the most challenging part. Okay. And have you had any reactions to the title, which of course I think is an authentic and explicit statement, Uh, but I can imagine it may provoke some reactions. Yeah, Uh, I think the feedback has been very positive and the title has caught the attention of a lot of people. And when we, you know, wrote the title, actually the title comes from a place of truth. That is exactly what the book is about. Mm. And when we say, uh, you know, being politically correct does not help anyone, we are not necessarily trying to be politically incorrect. But what we're saying is, can we have an authentic, honest and no holds barred discussion? Because unless we have, you discuss the ouch topics, you know, we are not getting anywhere. So I think the reaction has been very positive. People have said things like it's a politically respectful book. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, and also, you know, people uh, who are, you know, uh, people who've read the book are people who are very interested in this topic. And they've said things like whichever side of the debate you are on, you cannot disagree with the book. So, and, and that's essentially how we have written the book, right? Our objective was not to take a side, to look at it as a problem and then analyze it from various perspectives so I think the the feedback has been positive to the title actually yeah and I would agree with that you came from a place of inquiry as you said and I think this is what it does the book it makes you inquire and it makes you ask different questions and it makes you curious about a subject that is often predefined in organizations when really we should be looking at that definition and understanding what it means for people leaders but also for the processes and systems and the idea of the um, ideological echo chamber in your book and the need to make it more than just a HR tick box exercise leads us to question not only what we measure but 
how we measure it yeah. without falling into typical KPIs that maybe if you take a step back and look at them, don't necessarily measure what you want to measure if you know what you want to measure. So can you take us through the idea of, and I love this bit, does diversity actually help business? Because it's yeah. a statement and it does, and I wholly believe it does, but I think it's really interesting to reframe that. And the way you do it in the yeah. book is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the, the fact that the question itself needs to be asked, that's significant, right? Because there, yeah. there, are, two, there are two contradictory things that we, we see happening, right? On one hand, you know, it's taken as a given that diversity does help business. Uh, and there are, there, are, there are a lot of uh, key studies we've picked up. And then we, we spoke about, uh, you know, how data is used to show that, you know, hey, this is how diversity uh, mm-hmm. helps the business. And that too, in the, uh, you know, in the short term. Yep. Uh, and then when you look dig deep, you find that these are mere correlations and not causal relationship between the data and the outcome, right? So we are not asking, we are not taking a devil's advocate perspective and saying, hey, does diversity help business or variations of that question? How does diversity help business or what kind of diversity do I need that will help my business? I'll share some examples of that as well. Uh, But let me talk about the other thing, which is in contradiction that happens where we talk of, let's say, affirmative action. And those things are questioned. And we are saying that that question needn't be asked. It's a given that having gender diversity that does not need justification, right? It's a given. Perhaps the questions we should be asking is how to make affirmative action work or how to ensure that affirmative action does not give in to, you know, what the skeptics are saying and there, there's value in that, right? So for example, mm-hmm. if you just bring, for example, just gender diversity, if you bring women on board and you're not investing aggressively on their development, right? Someday the skeptics might be right, right? So we're not asking the right questions. Mm. So uh, going back to, you know, businesses asking, does diversity help me? One of the, uh, I would say one of the advantages of us writing the book, and we've mentioned it, that this is not a book by experts of DNI. In fact, yeah. we go a step ahead and say that it, this could not have been written by experts is because we, we looked at it from a very different lens. I'm an entrepreneur and I, I think of it as an entrepreneur, right? For example, when I'm hiring, what matters to me? I want the person I can get for the money that I have available to pay for the job. <laughs> who can do the job best mm. and who can I find the fastest, right? That's yeah. that's the nature of startups. We are struggling for survival, right? And therefore, for a startup that's growing, diversity would mean, you know, differently than, let's say, once the startup establishes itself and now it's building an organization to last. So diversity at different stages will mean different things. So defining that is very important and then working towards that and then pivoting when the right time comes, right? So therefore asking that question, does diversity help business and what kind of diversity helps business is a very important question to ask. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that's the start of a very long journey to a culture that thrives, isn't it? So it's a given that diversity helps business because I think it's proven cognitively and otherwise that it helps innovation and that multiple perspectives keep you humble if you like so if you can hold multiple perspectives then as a leader of an organization or a community or a team you are constantly asking yourself that question how do I know I'm right so I think that's really important but if you don't like you say if you don't aggressively and deliberately put it into your systems and processes so that it's recognized and built upon then it's difficult and 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 I really love the part around equal not same 
Yeah. Because yeah. for me, this goes to the bottom of it's instrumental in understanding inclusion as a subject, but also as an approach. So you make the difference here between absolute equality and equity. And I particularly like the example used around the subject of privilege, where you, which is hardly ever spoken about. So, you know, where you say communicating privileges and their boundaries clearly, instead of covertly and selectively, is the difference between a structured goal-driven affirmative action, which is what you're talking about, versus a reverse discrimination or preferential treatment. And you go on to develop the idea of playing the diversity card Um, and the role of this diversity card in actually bridging the gap to to build equity. It would be great if you could take our listeners through this concept for two reasons. One, privilege is never spoken about. And we can use it as affirmative action if we frame it correctly or differently. And two, this whole diversity card. How many times have I heard personally in my career and around me? Oh, yeah, well, she got the job because she was a woman. Oh, she's playing the diversity card. And I just really like the idea of the diversity card being a positive bridge. So I think it would be very interesting if you could take our listeners through that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, for me, it was very important to talk about, you know, for this, the same instances that you mentioned, I've worked in, in human resources as well. Mm-hmm. You, of course, as colleagues, we exchange notes mm-hmm. and it does happen. And, you know, in the spirit of having an honest conversation, it also happens that people do use a card incorrectly. So yes. it's various truths to what the naysayers as, say as well. Having said that, diversity, uh, you know, any kind of card, like, you know, I've mentioned in the book is important because we we know there's a gap. There is yeah. a gap that has happened due to uh, societal wrongs, historic wrongs, and and that's the other thing that I speak of in the book, that the, the entire mantle does not lie with corporates. It cannot be borne by corporates alone. Yeah. I think, you know, Absolutely. a lot of the diversity Absolutely. conversation is completely centered around what are organizations doing. It's a larger society, societal problem. So academia has to be a part of it. Uh, government has to be a part of the dialogue yeah. and that's not happening. But if I look at just corporates, we also, you know, bear a part of the mantle to set that right. So some sort of that card might be inevitable, which because you're correcting the gap. Having said that, unless there is due thought given to what will that privilege look like, mm. right? If you are a disadvantaged group, these are the privileges you will have. This is why you'll have it. These are the boundaries of it. And this is the the end time. So I think the the core of any privilege or any affirmative action is to define the outcomes and also define the end time. Because when those two things are missing, that's when privilege becomes toxic. Any affirmative action becomes toxic, right? And third is transparency, right? There is a lot of discomfort, like you said, talking about it. So organizations also try to do it in a hush manner, but they're doing it with good intent. So I think it's important to put some thought to it and bite the bullet and be transparent about it. And I think, you know, that's an objective way of going about, Mm. uh, you know, any kind of affirmative action, correcting the gap, kind of privilege card, whatever you call it. It's really interesting because when I read that part, I thought if I come from a place of curiosity, and put all my experiences and biases behind me, which of course you can't always do 100%. I was thinking, what would happen if that was the question that was asked for diversity strategies? Where are our gaps? Where do people feel they need to play the privilege card or the gender card or, you know, the diversity card? And where is it being played incorrectly? Because 
then you're into systemic bias around organizational politics and, and the unwritten codes of an organizational culture, if you like. So I found that really interesting for leaders, organizations, and our listeners who want to take that a step further and be innovative in their approach to DNI, but also more sustainable. I found that concept of reframing diversity cards as a gap to building equity really interesting. But you know, gender diversity is clearly the most discussed diversity in terms of board level, C-suite level, and even in general. And if I look at what happened with the pandemic and the she session and the effect it's had on women in the workplace and in society, it also brings me to the idea of Sampan, which you discuss in your book. Um, So as a concept, I loved it. So the idea of being whole as opposed to perfect, uh, particularly for women, I, I think that's a very interesting reframe. But I also think it can be instrumental in reframing the gender question in society yeah. and organizations. So could you walk us through Sampan and what it means for, for refocusing on fixing the environment and not fixing the women? Mm. Now that's a sort of sloganism because it, you know, you, yeah. you hear it everywhere, but it's so true. And I don't, I think trying to fix the person mm. who's in the minority isn't fixing the environment. Mm. Mm. Sure. And before I go to Sampan, I, I, I wanted to share something about, you know, uh, fixing the environment, which you rightly said, this is the kind of uh, language that we describe the, the problem in. But I have always been very conscious about that because, you know, as soon as we say, you know, don't fix the woman, fix the environment, the question that comes to my mind is who's who's trying to fix? Now, if you take women out, then we're saying that, okay, men are trying to fix the women. That is not true. Mm. Uh, you know, we do know that uh, whether you say stereotypes, whether you say, you know, this balance of power, women also have played a role Clearly. in, you know, uh, propagating that. So uh, one, I, I, I steer away from that. But coming back to Sampan, so this is a, a concept in Indian culture, right? We say Sarva Gun Sampan, which is complete in all qualities. And, and typically women are, girls are raised like that, right? You you are, you know, taught to be good at home, good outside, etc. And and we see that, right? And that, that's what uh, data also says that when you have, uh, let's say, difficult world situation, let's say uh, a famine or whatever, right? So they typically say that if the female is a more resilient, you know, of the species mm. than the male, right? And uh, what I've argued uh, in that chapter is to say, and there, there's a lot of literature around, you know, women uh, are perfectionists and perhaps that is what explains why they lack confidence, why they don't raise their hand up and they always feel the inadequate in, let's say, boardroom, why they don't ask for a seat at the table. Mm. Right? And that's, always been used as a construct and you know even books that you know referred to mm. in the chapter but I I felt that that was not necessarily true I you know I know plenty of women who are not necessarily perfectionists right yes. having said that something that could be common across all women is this you know inherent thing to be good at everything and some level of guilt when you are sort of struggling with it, right? Yes. And therefore, you know, the suggestion is if some pun could be taken as a construct for research when you're looking at, you know, gender behaviors, et cetera, that could be a better approach rather than, you know, assuming that women Mm. are necessary. Perfectionists, that's one. Second, um, the other point that I make is it is not to say that women need to be less sampan. Clearly, being sampan has worked for them, right? We have been more resilient, yeah. right? Yeah. So one of the things, or equal, not same, is to say that too much of the focus of when you're saying, you know, the gender stereotype, this gender inequality, then it is it is very one of the things that you know made me very curious about the subject is how come 
almost the entire rhetoric is around women you know where are men where yeah. are men yeah. in the discussion right they just completely slipped out of focus so i think when i look at sampan the focus should also be when we are saying that we want you know men to be playing as much of a role at home you know we want to change the stereotypical roles then it is also perhaps how we need to raise men differently and this is not a new idea mm-hmm. by the way a lot of people have spoken about it but i think particularly now that the the conversation has heated up so much i think we need to revisit it and men need to become more sampan and uh, i think women women got it um, mm. and there's nothing that needs to be done there but i think a little bit of focus has to shift on men as well and mm. how they need to be groomed differently raised differently you know as boys absolutely and i think you get a lot of male perfectionists as well it's just that yeah. the whole part they don't often have the multi roles that women have so i like the idea of also using that as a research base yeah. and looking at human beings in general <laughs> yeah. um and and you know what that could mean if we moved to more a reframing around being whole than than yeah. perfectionism and driving by i have to have perfect results yeah. and to come to your point about fixing the environment i mean typically you're right we we look at the women today but does anyone really need fixing and if i come to your point about yeah. um because that's quite a strong word and if i come to your point about sampan it's about balance isn't it it's about reframing and yeah. i think it's great that the dialogue has been opened on these subjects and that we are actually now looking at both i was going to say men and women but also masculine and feminine ways of feminine. being doing and leading and that got me really curious the discussion yeah. of sampan in your book around what the possibilities would be yeah. Yeah. for recreating a balance that would look and feel completely different and that would also bring with it more equality in terms of gender in the workplace i just want to add one more thing here when we we talk of equal not same i think uh, and it's very important that there's more conversation around it is to also not look at the entire problem and define it in terms of men and women yes Because one of the implications of equal not same is not all women are same and that's one of the things i, I talk of that while we're trying to get rid of the existing stereotypes we might inadvertently you know create new stereotypes so for example you know all women need not be the boss girl you yeah, know uh, yeah. uh, you know so that's that's the other extreme that we are swinging to or so not all women are different not all men are different even something as basic as lot of the the gender and women you know support kind of policies and programs tend to be around returning mothers right yeah. uh, lot yeah. mothers are like the focus of any gender initiative but there's a growing uh, population of single women right yeah. a lot of times i have i feel alienated when i listen to as an individual i feel alienated when i listen to those programs because i feel you're missing out on an, on an entire demographic group right so yeah. that's also one of the things that you know i definitely want to point out and we need more conversation around that we do and and i think it brings me quite nicely to the idea of bias because that's essentially what we're talking about and there's so much on unconscious bias and whether the training works or not for me it is a go to starting point particularly for organizations when they look at dni um you cover this in your book but we very quickly get to the what's next and for me the real question is what do i do once bias is understood and conscious because anyone who has a brain has bias so you're never going to get rid of, of your bias but I wanted to share this part of the book with our listeners because for me it's so instrumental in understanding bias and the fact that humans are not an exact science are they so that's why inclusion's a little bit wobbly it always reminds yeah. me of that yenga game you know when you take the yeah. the wood blocks out and it falls or it doesn't yeah. but 
you know, in the book, you explain that the best way to define a word is to identify its opposite. Yeah. You know, the foundation of discrimination is bias, i.e. a distorted perception of facts, whatever those facts are. But that the opposite is not equality, but rather truth, i.e. seeing things as as they are, as what you see. And I love that for various reasons, partly because that's instrumental in what you do with bias once it's conscious. But also, for me, it's the way forward for creating psychological safety, whether it's in an organization or a team or a family or a community. And, you know, psychological safety isn't about being nice or politically correct, is it? It's about feeling safe in your interpersonal relationship so that you can challenge and healthily have these debates from a place of inquiry and curiosity, like you say. But to come back to what we do once bias is conscious, can you take us through one or two examples of the real case studies that you give in your book about and how you got to these big ideas about bias? So how they can lead to conflicting values, logical fallacies you know, that they can be both boon and bane. I really liked the bias into perspective because for me that is a building block of understanding diversity so different, but also understanding inclusion and inclusive environments. So, you know, psychological safety, empathy, responsibility. It would be great if you could walk us through an example of getting a different perspective on bias. Sure, sure. The the, uh, two or three things that I want to share in response uh, to your question, let me start... uh, let me uh, come to the first point last. You're, as far as uh, bias and, you know, to the point uh, that you said, and I agree that uh, correcting unconscious bias, there's so much of, you know, focus. And uh, I think even organizations spend, a lot of the DNI spend is going into yes. correcting unconscious bias. And that's a little bit of a paradox because, you know, anyone who studied HR, they'll always be taught that iceberg and they say that, you know, knowledge, skills and attitude and you cannot correct attitude, you can train for skills or you hire for the right attitude and somewhere, you know, bias and th- those come in the very deep-seated bottom yes. of the iceberg kind of categories. <laughs> so I, I always find it, you know, strange that we are trying to correct bias through training. I, you know, I don't think, you know, something as deep-rooted as bias can be corrected through training and Definitely not, you know, one or training, right? And this is where, you know, one of the arguments of the book is to say the entire problem cannot be corrected at the end of corporations, right? This is where academia has to be brought in. This is where industry academia partnerships have to happen, right? Because all managers and leaders were once students, right? Many of them went to B schools. How teaching and learning happens in, you know, in in business schools or in colleges, higher education institutes, or even Mm. K-12, right? There are many practices that I point out and there are many more that I can talk about, which Mm. not only don't address bias or, you know, uh, or creating inclusive uh, individuals, but a lot of times do exactly the opposite, right? Mm. You you know, if, if your focus is so much on grades and that is what is valued by employers as well as your academic institute, you'll always try and team up with the same set of people or where you know you get maximum success. But you don't you don't always get to choose your team at workplaces, right? But you you have been trained for many years in your life that way, right? So I do think that while bias, you know, is a very important area to address, unfortunately, that's a mantle that corporates are trying to bear, but it's not for them to correct. And like imagine talking to people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and trying to correct bias at that age, right? That's yeah. a losing battle as I see it, right? <laughs> so, so it's very important. That's why it's very important to have a, you know, a, a, a wider ecosystem debate on this, right? These are problems mm-hmm. that cannot be solved at corporates. And having said that, you have to try and do something about it, right? Yes. 
so to your question on, you know, what do we do with it? So I think one of the things that I've observed is there tends to be a very blanket approach to bias. And again, the assumption is the assumed privileged groups have the bias, you know, against yeah. the, you know, minority groups. That's not true. Everyone has biases, right? So I think bias itself, the way it's dealt with an organization has to be a little more inclusive and widespread. And I think the organization together has to ideate. I also think the starting point could be beliefs rather than bias. Like what is it that we believe in in context of the work we do that impacts us? Put those beliefs on the table, right? Yes. Now, some of those could be biases and not all biases are wrong. So one of the examples that I talk about in the book is, so for example, you know, that might be true in many parts in the world. You know, we, we still see that uh, in India. And again, I'd say that probably, you know, still those gender stereotypical roles exist, right? And it will take, several decades before that changes, right? Um, And again, just because it exists, it need not be wrong. Sometimes people make a conscious choice, right? So one of the things that women do face in interviews, and I've been asked that question, right? So either when are you getting married in some way? And if you are around that age, you know, they'll try to somehow get a sense of, are you, you know, about to have a child, right? Now, I shared a particular anecdote. I was working in an HR role and one of the hiring managers, and he's a a senior person, he said that he is trying to avoid hiring a female engineer for his team. Now, what is the general reaction to it? The person will be crucified if he says that in the open. Mm. But I know for a fact that he's not a misogynist. The challenge was the organization had a hiring freeze for the longest time. The profile that they had to hire, it it was difficult to get skin, right? Mm. Third, the organization was also not the highest payer in that category. The competitors would pay high. So any position would take seven to eight months to get, you know, filled. A backfill would also take that time. Mm. The team was already short-staffed and overworked, right? So in that circumstance, if hypothetically someone came on board and, you know, went on maternity leave, the business was not supporting him, but the business was putting the onus on the manager for delivery, right? Was it the best and most elegant solution? Definitely not. But was he coming from a place of misogyny? That's no. also not. Mm-hmm. Also, the truth remains that, you know, still women tend to take a back seat in their career if it's a choice between their husband and them, right? And they'll take some time to change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So some of those are truths. And, you know, the bias may not come from a, uh, you know, it's not incorrect. And that's why I said it's very important to put everything on the table and look at it objectively. Because, mm-hmm. you know, something like this, people will be so apprehensive to discuss openly, right? But it's very important to discuss it openly. So, you know, coming back to the question of how one's bias is conscious, so I would say the better approach is to put your beliefs on the table and be inclusive. It's not like a privileged group versus a minority group. Everyone puts their beliefs on the table because it could work the other way around as well. And then, you know, in context of work, you could have thousands of beliefs, but, you know, 15 are most important, you know, when it comes to us working together. Mm-hmm. You look at it. And then, then we ask objective questions on how some of these could come in our way. Does the belief need changing or does the organization need to provide support? So in the example I gave, it was the organization yes. who had to provide support. There are a couple of organizations, not many, but a couple of organizations do have a policy where, you know, they would give a backfill for a woman going on maternity leave. In fact, one organization I was talking to, they have this practice that that's the opportunity if it's a managerial role, particularly mm. if the woman was in a managerial role and she's on maternity leave, that's the time they would use to, let's say, train a junior person and give yeah. them that for a shorter period. Those are beautiful practices, right? So... 
the solution to bias is, is doesn't necessarily need to do we need to correct the bias or do we need to provide organizational support is also a question that needs to be asked so i think that mm-hmm. is perhaps a logical way to approach you know, the issue of uh, unconscious bias absolutely and i like the idea of putting our beliefs on the table as well as our assumptions and our fears you know that's that's the basis of any change management discussion isn't it but and this is essentially about changing what we think i mean the last part of your book is called rewiring um, diversity. I love that because I do think it's, if I take the iPhone analogy, it's not just about buying a new application for gender yeah. or for ERGs. or for, It's about retraining and updating our iOS system, so our internal yeah. operating systems. And yeah. um, so it's harder change, isn't it? It's we have to look at our beliefs, our assumptions, our mindset. And I love the idea of organizational support because, you know, at an individual level, we have to do it. But at a collective level, we also have to do it. And I don't think we have a common platform today. And you point that out in your discussion around ecosystems today in terms of how much, not how on board they are, how much they understand the topic or they don't in a common way. And you say they're in a fledgling state and that we don't have a common understanding or platform yet with governments, organisations, education. And I think that's a great place to start. And I think it's full of opportunities for individual leaders, but also for organizations to actually make a difference there. But but it's come back to our first discussion. They have to go through a spiky conversation to get there. I mean, I would, there's so many conclusions to this subject and it's never going to be concluded, is it? Which is what I like about it. But I would invite all our listeners to go and read the book. And particularly, I love the big ideas page at the end of each chapter, which, you know, just summarizes what you've been saying and what you think, but with no sort of with no mandatory thing to actually believe that but yeah. you know this is what's coming out of of the inquiry yeah. and this is what we could get curious about if you had to give your main learning on driving diversity inclusion strategy particularly in today's post-pandemic world and you've obviously done a lot of research for this book what would that be I would say, um, you know while pandemic may have uh, brought in you know, certain differences about how we work, but the fundamentals of diversity and inclusion, that does not change. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we are at a very nascent stage, I would say, as an ecosystem. We are still aiming for the low-hanging fruits, which is fine. We have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think a couple of things are important. One, at a systemic level, one, we've already spoken about how links between corporate, academia, and government, the Mm -hmm. dialogue and debate is required. What is also important is to make small and medium uh, sector organizations are part of the dialogue. And I say this, like if I if I go to a panel discussion, et cetera, you, know, you don't have someone from academia, you also don't have someone from a small business, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of the conversation is around Fortune 500. Yeah. But a yeah. large part of the uh, you know, population is employed in small to medium sector and they don't have the resources, they don't have the know-how, right? And a lot of help is required there. So I think from a systemic point of view, mm-hmm. you have to be inclusive about the solutions of inclusion. Really? So that's one. <laughs> Uh, second, I think in terms of learning, I, I would also say, and there are many ideas that I want to carry forth from the book, build a community, you know, start having these dialogues that, that we're talking mm-hmm. about, because I realize a lot of work needs to be done after the you know book as well to get some traction and work mm-hmm. in this direction. Uh, so I think it's very important for organizations to think of diversity, not just in terms of incumbent. So if you see everything we're talking about is in terms of incumbent diversity, right? You know, talking of role diversity, and I talk about it intensively in the rewiring chapter, right? How do you construct roles? Today, 
actually, if you see skills are increasingly interdisciplinary, mm. uh, you will find the right fit. Some, uh, uh, you know, that person will be somewhere in that gig economy, right? <laughs> and the person who does not fit your job description, in fact, you know, that's one of the things I say, we are writing job descriptions to, you know, exclude people uh, or defining jobs in a way that are not mm. like, how do you construct a marketing department? How do you construct an HR department, right? We're still operating the way we operated mm. 20 five years ago right or even even before that that's important second third is process diversity right so so to the point and this is one of the recurring themes that we mentioned across chapters is di- presence of diversity alone will not benefit a business mm. if you don't have processes so dissent is an entire chapter right if you don't have processes to you know actively seek and incorporate the, mm. those diverse thoughts as a part of your decision making process diversity as a social good will be there but diversity that benefits business that will not happen so thought diversity for example is is absolutely mm. possible without, for example, having a process to harness dissent, right? So process diversity. So organizations need to start from A, asking what does the diversity mean to us at this stage of the business? Second, uh, not limit yourself to incumbent diversity, but also look at how do you define roles? How do you write job descriptions, job specification? And so that's role diversity. And third is process diversity so so that's you know these these are very important third and most important thing is diversity has to be a ceo's kra and i think a very telling sign is if you have a diversity workshop and you know the mandate is let the hr leadership go and attend and business leadership is too busy doing business till that day diversity uh, is seen as a part of core business strategy right Really? It is not going to work. It has to be driven by the CEO and the business team. I think diversity is everybody's business and definitely a business leader's business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why we need to demystify what it brings to business and how it can bring that to business if you do the inclusive part, which is yeah. creating the culture that allows it to actually, as you say, become part of the top strategic objectives and the way people act and interact and in the organization. I'm aware that time is running. Can I ask you what would be your final call to action for leaders? And I'm going back into the corporate world because that's where most of uh, my listeners are. You know, what would be your final call to action for leaders and organizations looking to become more inclusive? Uh, If I were to say just one, uh, I think it would be this. I think we have to begin with being open to saying, I know that I don't know. Uh, because uh, you know if what you started with saying that uh, somewhere there is there is this pressure to appear as an expert. I've figured it out. I know it, right? Yeah. But the, the topic, the complexity of this topic, uh, and uh, we don't have the answers. I would say the entire book is just about questions. It has no answers. It just asks the questions. I would say that unless you're willing to start with saying, "Hey, I don't know. Uh, I know that I don't know." Uh, I think that's the starting point. For everything until till the time we have the humility and the courage it requires a lot of courage actually yeah. to say that uh, I don't think we'll go anywhere excellent I'm going to leave our listeners with that be comfortable with knowing what you don't know or knowing that you don't know yeah. uh, Swati thanks so much for coming and sharing your thoughts your research your experience with us where can people find out more about you and, and what you do 
I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm very happy to connect on LinkedIn and keep the conversation going. I'm starting a community called Diversity Beyond Tokenisms. I, I, you know, I'll be sharing about ah, a, a lot cool. about that. You know, on on LinkedIn because there's a lot of dialogue that has to happen. Yeah, and I'd love to keep that going. I'd love to connect with uh, people. So LinkedIn is a place to uh, connect with me. I'd like look. I'd look forward to that. Excellent. So look out for Swati on LinkedIn and for the community, which sounds really exciting, yeah. on developing this idea of inquiry into diversity on tokenism. Yeah. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, please go to iTunes and give us your feedback and your review. And it's bye from me for now. And I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm-hmm.